You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this session, we're looking at the Pre-Hospital Airway with John Chatterjee. So what I wanted to do is examine some of the fundamentals of pre-hospital care and the pre-hospital airway from airway assessment all the way through to the difficulties posed by the pre-hospital airway. So I wanted to also look at the management from a stepwise concept to the use of invasive surgical techniques and maybe even how we manage the airway in more fundamental terms. I also wanted to examine some of the optimal methods of using monitoring to uh, to monitor the respiratory efforts and when when not to intervene. I also wanted to discuss with John around the use of VL, so video laryngoscopy, and how it's starting to creep more into general practice. So to do this, I have John Chatterjee with me. John is a consultant anesthetist with an interest in pre-hospital care and difficult airways. He's always in, also interested in uh, thoracic and high-risk anesthesia. He has worked with and educated clinicians from around the world in various ambulance services, including places like New Zealand, Sydney, Liberia, Ethiopia, Ukraine, and the UK, where he's worked with HEMS and BASICS. John is an anaesthetist at Guy's and St. Thomas's and a consultant with London's Air Ambulance of the Royal London. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to uh, great to have you on, John. John, I just wonder if we could just maybe first speak to why the principal airway can be so challenging. So I think one of the first myths to break about anaesthesia and airway management is that it's hard. Um, now, I understand I'm coming from the standpoint that my entire career is built on giving anaesthetics. But if I am honest about it, I only have to go through one hole and then have a choice of two holes and I need to get it in the right hole. That's airway management done. It's not actually that complicated. And if you look at anaesthesia around the world, um, you know, in the UK at the moment, the vast majority of anaesthetics are given by physician anaesthetists. So you're talking about people with five, six years in medical school, then another seven or eight years postgraduate training to become a consultant in anaesthesia, passing really quite tough exams. And there's lots of reasons why the exams are so tough. But, you know, outside of COVID, I'm not entirely sure how useful it was for every anaesthetist to know exactly how oxygen is delivered to the hospital or vacuum insulated evaporator works. But those are the sort of minutiae and details that they know and boiling temperature and stuff. But actually, if you look around the world, anesthesia is delivered by a range of practitioners with far fewer years of baseline knowledge. And the reason that that isn't a disaster everywhere else is because actually it's not that difficult. And there's a um, an often used um, sort of comparison in anesthesia that that irritates some, and I apologise if this is, if you are one of those people, about flying and aviation and anaesthesia. And it's one of the sort of two closest sort of comparisons in medicine in the world. And anaesthesia is compared to flying a, uh, a commercial jet. And if you think about that, you are getting into a plane at JFK or Gatwick or Heathrow, and you know where you're flying to, you know the weather, you know the plan, you've got everything there that you can plan 99.9% of the journey. But still, just like a normal general anaesthetic, it might be that you're going through some thunderclouds and storms, you've got all your mitigations, all your planning there. 
But if something goes wrong, you want the captain with all of that training to be able to rescue the plane in that disaster. And that's hospital general anesthesia. Pre-hospital anesthesia is more akin to flying a fighter jet. Now, this will definitely appeal to some pre-hospital practitioners who want to think themselves as, you know, Tom Cruise and Top Gun and Maverick. Sadly, you don't want to be Tom Cruise in this instance. You might want to look like him, but maybe a bit taller, but you, you don't want to be making maverick decisions and going off on your own. If you look at the life of a fighter jet pilot, they spend time training, 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 and training to once in every thousand sorties or less actually going on a live mission. And what they're going on is something with limited information having to react to what they're doing. And that is exactly what the pre-hospital airway is like. We need to train and train for this. But the difficulty is when you finally get there, you don't know exactly what you can expect. You've never met this patient before and you don't know their history and you don't know the team you're working with and you don't know the why, you know, the full history of why they've been injured and everything else. And, you know, one of my colleagues when I was talking about this in hospital said, and pre-hospital, you don't have pillows. And we have pillows in hospital. I, I work mainly with the London Ambulance Service now. Pillows are an absolute premium. But all these things mean that actually when you are doing a pre-hospital anaesthetic, you're doing something much, much more challenging and not because of the holes that you're putting the tubes into, but because of the entire environment around you that just makes it harder. So you've mentioned a number of uh, factors there and you know one of the pivotal things is like you said, there's no pre-airway assessment. There's these patients are archetypally and historically unfasted so they may have had that sort of chicken curry or indeed dinner right before an event a medical or trauma event um could you maybe just speak to some of the other red flags um such well i guess you know some maybe some of the maxillofacial trauma or indeed blood or challenges but also other challenges such as the environment and indeed the weather and other things that can play into the back of ambulances, other things that can play into the factors within pre-hospital care. Yeah. I mean, I think you can kind of divide these up into the patient things, the environmental things and the human factor things. The human factors, I think, is the biggest challenge. And I guess we'll get onto that a bit later on about some of the, some of the cases and stuff that I've been involved in. In terms of the environment, you know, you, you want to try and make it as normal as possible. And the, and the way um, in, a, in, in my home service in London, where we work very closely as a two-person team, I sort of emphasise on the paramedics. What your job is to do as the expert in the pre-hospital environment is to try and make it as most like a hospital as possible for your, for your doctor, because they're going to be least experienced there. And you want to bring all those things in that make it as easy as possible. So getting the bed to the right height, getting things positioned, getting a standardized kit up. So everything, you start to bring some order into the chaos and lighting and all these other things sort of help to make that environment better. But there are things you just can't control, but you know, but you can ask for sound to be reduced and all that. And if you think about that kind of thing when you play into the human factors of asking you to do something relatively simple when you're not tired and you're not under stress versus doing the same thing when you are tired and under stress, it's that same thing of all these distractions make it harder. Just like I can walk through the door of my flat every day without any problems and I can leave the flat every day without any problems. But for example, this morning, 
I walked out and I forgot my keys because I was tired. I was stressed from other things going on. I didn't want to go to the, um, the, the things I had to do today. And all these things, they just distract you and things that you would never think of distract you. And, that, and that's the environment there. In terms of the patients, they're rubbish. You know, the patients just don't play ball. In hospital, if my patient's terrible in a heap of a patient, what I do is I find the best possible excuse to punt them onto another day or get one of my colleagues to do them. You just can't do that because you're it pre-hospitally. And you will you will end up with the the difficult airway, obese, vomiting patient in the worst and it's just you don't you don't have the option of delaying calling help and you are that one thing there and where i think the the role of the two person team is really critical here is supporting each other in trying to make that patient and look at forward to those things and so what i say to the paramedics who often work as the assistants in the london system is you're sitting a few degrees off from the patient, you've got a much better side view of that patient. Look at them. Look at what a patient should look like on a trolley in an, in an anaesthetic room in an ideal intubating condition. Yes, the environment, if they've got a traumatic injury, you might have to put them you know, in, in uh, inline stabilization. You might not be able to. But even in inline stabilization, you don't want the neck you know, back at, uh, you know, at 30 degrees negative, you want it at a neutral position. So you can do things to mitigate that. You don't want someone who's, you know, who's positioned so poorly that their, that their sternum is, is as far up as their chin. You want to have that kind of angulation. And, and these things, you can teach people to look at specific points and specific angles and stuff. But the human eye, the mark one eyeball is brilliant at just saying that looks right that doesn't look right and so you could almost just do flashcards to teach people like this is what a patient should look like from the side this is not what someone should look like from the side and simple things like that and then when it comes to the crm i are you know we put people through the ringer in the uh, in the courses in the helicopter crew courses before they start with us and obviously on the job as well and I remember seeing a beautiful piece of um, critical or crisis resource management when we gave a normal mannequin to a pair of um, practitioners, a senior uh, hospital doctor and a senior paramedic who were both very experienced. And you put their peers around them watching them do this moulage. The senior doctor went in and said, I, I can't see anything. And in his mind, he's thinking it's a trick. This is a difficult airway. And it's not. It's a completely normal mannequin. And his, his co-practitioner, co the paramedic, puts his arm on his shoulder and goes, it's all right, just take your time, tell me what you see, tell me what we can do to improve it and try these tricks. And then when he got the view, the, the paramedic who had sort of gotten through this stress then tries to put the circuit together and literally you see a filter, a, a catheter mount, um, you know, a, a, a CO2 line all just fly up in the air in sort of in, in unison. It's just like a beautiful shower. But but then you just see this guy's face look absolutely crestful. But he screwed this up. And, you know, at this point, you know, the, the, um, the, the doctor goes, it's okay, just, just get... The, the filter line, get this, the catheter mount, get this, put them together. It's no problem. The sats are okay. And this sort of yin and yang of reassuring one another of the different parts of the procedure, that's what makes it really work. 
But equally, those are the points where it can really fall apart. Yeah, that's an excellent concept. Just just that clear, concise, but also calm communication whereby like you say it's the handoff um and you're almost de-escalating each other in in that process and it kind of leads me nicely on to sort of ask john around how important it is to sort of have the team on side and maybe indeed even the wider team when so when like you said the fighter pilot has to perform that once in a blue moon procedure that might be front of neck access um it might be a really challenging rsi um, it might be uh, dramatically or really badly soiled airway. Could you maybe speak to sort of bringing the wider team on board um, and indeed how maybe how, indeed how you do it? So I think the team is absolutely critical to this. If the wider team is not on board, it makes it much harder. So as a practitioner, I have my level of skill, my level of experience. If I'm working with a London Hens team, I have one threshold for when I would elect to to intubate and and give an anaesthetic if i as the same practitioner and working in basics as so this is working out of my own car by myself or i say by myself as a team of one but joining the ambulance service there i don't come with a buddy that i've trained with that i know my threshold for anesthesia goes up massively and this is where the team really makes a difference. So what I say is when I'm when I'm working by myself, I take the checklist out and I go to, you know, and speak to who's going to assist me if I decide that we're going to do this. And then say, right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to brief you and we're going to brief the whole team. We're going to do this in slow time. And so if there's a time pressure that means I can't do this, then this is not the anaesthetic I should be giving pre-hospital. We should just be going to somewhere because it, for me, it's not about who puts the tube in it's about when that patient gets the oxygenation and the and the ventilation that they need if it's going to be faster me just getting them somewhere else and swallowing my pride and saying you're better doing this in in a district general hospital than me doing outside on the road that's the right thing for the patient and that's what you've got to keep an eye on because i know if i'm going to do it as a basics doctor I need to take time to brief everybody and do everything. Whereas I know if I'm doing it as a HEMS practitioner, I've got the team around me and that makes all of the difference. Um, And so in terms of bringing that team on board, you need to have people believing in your decision. And this is where I think when we talk about airway management, we talk about stepwise processes and we talk about doing things in, you know, in, in, in A leading to B, leading to plan C, et cetera. But actually, I think the decision process, you could almost look at it backwards. If your patient does need an anaesthetic and they need to have their airway managed pre-hospitally, then you've already decided at that point that that patient is going to get a surgical airway if they need it. The point to decide whether they need surgical airway is not at your third attempt of laryngoscopy and failure, because that's just all the wrong thing. You need to front load your thinking and say, does this patient need it? Can this patient do well getting to hospital without us doing these things here? If the answer to that is yes, then I shouldn't be mucking around. There's, I've got my entire life to play with drugs and tubes and things and do things. And plenty of opportunities will come up to do stuff. And I don't need to do that now. I need to do what's right for that patient. 
And so that decision-making is key. And so, again, what I say to our doctors and paramedics in London is look at the SOP, the standard operating procedure. There are five or six really simple indications. If you and the paramedic cannot agree a simple indication, then you should be phoning somebody else for help and thinking about it. Yeah. And that means that all your decisions are made for you then where, the, where you proceed to. And, and that, by bringing the team on board, saying, look, guys, we're doing it because this patient's got respiratory failure. I think we need to ventilate them because of the physiology of the lungs, A, you know, ABC, and saying all these things. And then they're on board with you. And then they, then they want you to win. I think what we'll do, John, is I'll ask this question a bit later around your approach to RSI and how it's changed over the past five years, whether you've become more conservative. I'll, I'll, I'll park that question for now because it kind of links in with this sort of stepwise approach to uh, to to airway management. In fact, no. In fact, I'll ask it now because I will I will I will migrate on to other other topics. Maybe could you speak to airway management and yeah, and indeed your own anecdotal practice has has it become more conservative over, over the years? So, I, I always find that the more experience and more knowledge that I garner, the more options that I have. It, it seems very simple. I think the less I know, the simpler the answer has always seemed, um, and I think that's that's natural in life. You know, you ask a you ask a teenager what car you should get, they go, "Well, obviously this one." I don't know why you've been considering it, mate. You ask someone older, and they go, "Well, actually, maybe I should be getting the the Volvo rather than the sports car." And, you know, and that's the same with airway management. You you, you do think about it, you get more mature about it. Um, so I think over the years, you 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 sit there and you look at the endpoint of where you're going to. And there are some patients that you anaesthetize that don't fit into those things. And, and I remember a case where a patient was very high GCS um, and was talking to us. But I also knew that this poor chap had attempted to kill themselves and they were having a really, really bad day. And the nature of their injuries meant that when they went to hospital, there would be 10, 20 people in recess. They would follow them through to theatres. All these things would progress because of the nature of their injury. Um, and that meant that for this patient, it was going to be the worst day of their life multiplied by 100 because you've reached a decision that you want to end your life and you've, you've done something about it and it hasn't worked. And now you're going to be made a spectacle of you're going to end up in the operating theatre anyway. It, granted, it doesn't need to be in 30 minutes. It might be in an hour or two hours time. And you're going to do all these other things. But actually thinking about that, thinking about what you would want for your loved one, and then talking to that patient what he would want and making a decision to do that pre-hospital anaesthetic, not necessary for a super clinical reason, but the other thing, I think that's the maturity that sort of comes in. But it was very interesting that after that particular job, I ended up with a whole range of feedback from, from people outside and inside the ambulance from that was a really compassionate and nice thing to do for that patient for you could have been in hospital mate by then and you should have just gone. Why did you do that? You didn't need to do that. It didn't fit his career category. And, and I think that speaks to the maturity of it. And look, again, the range of opinions you always get, but I'm happy myself to A, admit that sometimes I will cock it up and get it wrong and B, sometimes I will get it right and no more than the other person. 
So looking at um, VL, John, for a minute, just pivoting and just sort of video laryngoscopy and its utility um, within sort of maybe first line airway management. So you have written the uh, the SOP uh, for airway management within within London, London's Air Ambulance, and you've been sort of charged with bringing video laryngoscopy into the service. Could you maybe speak to just your perspective on VL, where, when, and when, and where it should be used, um, and and its utility? Absolutely. Uh, first thing I will just caveat that it's not just me. A lot of my colleagues have helped paramedics, doctors and non-clinical staff to bring this in. So whilst my my name is at the front of it, actually, it's a huge number of people that have contributed to getting this to happen. Um, so I think when we talk about video laryngoscopy, it's, it's really interesting. So in my last 20, 25 years or so uh, through medicine, um, there have only been two big changes in anaesthesia. Um, don't tell any of, the, of my colleagues that write papers on, on minor things about that, because obviously they will think the biggest thing is changing from 18 and a half to 19 mils of propofol. But actually, there are only two really big things. And so the one big thing is moving away from tubing every patient to using supraglottic devices, and that's Archie Brain um, in developing the laryngeal mask airway in Reading and the Royal London that's revolutionized and changed what we've done. That change came in coupled with the use of a drug called propofol, which again changed hospital anesthesia. The other change is video laryngoscopy. And I think this is one of those things that is akin to when I started at London Hems, I was instructed and, and learned how to read a map book and navigate from a map book with this new funky device called a sat-nav in the background. And the idea that we would throw the map book away or at least, you know, relegate it to the back seat was, was unthinkable that, that, you know, you can't do that. You can't rely on this sat nav. What if this happens? What if that happens? And all these mitigations and, you know, and so you sit there and you go, that makes perfect sense then. But you look back at it 20 years later and you go to a new ambulance person, a new doctor to, um, you know, get the A to Z out and nav to Oxford Circus. like, go away. <laughs> You're a muppet. Just use sat-nav. Use ways. I mean, my other half gets very frustrated with me when I go, I know the road. She goes, I don't care what you know. I want to know what Waze knows because I want to get there faster because the technology is better and the technology has moved on. It's, you know, and, and I think that's where we are with VL. Right now, VL is the, is the sat-nav for the person with the MacBook. And we in the UK are kind of like, oh, not sure about this. But you look at other countries where it's been in more frequently and for what feels like longer though obviously the technologies progress the same around the world and you find that actually it is replacing it so you speak to north american practitioners and they some of them will say i haven't used a direct laryngoscope for years now you have this argument of a changeover process of should we still be able to use a macbook should we still be able to use direct laryngoscopy there's absolutely a good reason for that because VLs are fundamentally different to direct laryngoscopy and you need to understand what it adds and what it takes away. So in the same way that using a sat-nav adds to your efficiency and route planning, it takes away your general knowledge of where you are and the options should it fail. In the same way, direct laryngoscopy 
is a particular process and a particular skill set of, of how you use the blade and how you, you have, how you get your view. There are video learning scopes that progress along that, and we've chosen one at, the, um, at London that uses same geometry of blade and the same technique, which means there's a progression in your technique. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this uh, before we started recording. We used to carry a device called the Air Trap, which is a very good device. It's not that the device is bad, but the idea that when things start going wrong, I'm going to ask you to do something completely different. So things aren't going right. Pat your, pat your head, rub your tummy and stand on one leg and then do something different. It's, it's not going to work. And, and that's why I think when we're talking about the fighter jet scenario, you want to train people in a way and use devices that give them a continuum of, of skill. And that's where video laryngoscopes come in. And so if you have a normal geometry, what we call a MAC geometry blade, that's the same technique, that's the same view. You can then hyperangulate that blade, which changes the technique slightly, but it's still a continuum. You then have devices that are totally hyperangulated, which are quite away from that starting point, but still on that continuum. And then you've got channeled blades, um, which are another thing in themselves. In the channel blades, a lot of people have reassurance because they feel that you've got something to guide it in rather than using a stylet or, or a, 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 a flexible bougie. Um, and they do have utility, but actually they mean that you need to be lined up with the crosshairs directly to go in. And actually, most anaesthetists prefer the unguided things and they have a higher success rate with most of those, which is why you see a lot of channel devices slowly falling off the other end as, as this develops. But this means that as you go along, we not only do we need to remember some of the things from the map book, but we need to get faster at using and deploying the sat nav. You know, it's not like me putting my glasses on and going, right, Uxbridge Road and typing it in you've got the kids that just said tip, tap, tap, and it's in. And of course they know where it is. It's just opposite that Nando's and it's done. And that's that's where we're moving with this. But we are in that transition phase. It's a really nice analogy, actually, because like you said, it's 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 a progression, um, which is getting quicker and quicker. But also, as we're speaking offline, what it allows me to do, and indeed you, is to look into other people's practice. Because with direct laryngoscopy, it's you are pretty much the sole provider that can see into, into the oropharynx the hypopharynx, indeed, uh, looking at all the anatomical structures. But actually with VL, it gives that ability to retrospectively um, and indeed almost contemporaneously look into what you're seeing uh, when when the, when your device is connected to the cloud and indeed collected to a sort of cloud-based platform which is which is a powerful tool for retrospective case analysis could, he, could John could you maybe speak to its adoption because I, I think as you notioned towards before it is a change in attitude and it's a change in perception. Could you maybe yeah speak to uh, the the mindset challenges that you're maybe going to have to overcome as a as a consequence? Well, one thing I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying before, in terms of retrospective, it's fantastic, and I think that's going to be the next thing that comes in. In terms of prospective, having your assistant see what you're doing 
improves your view. And that's documented and, and written up in papers. And actually, having two of you look just makes it better. Um, in terms of adopting stuff, I, I found this fascinating. So, you know, you, you look to, again, aviation in terms of air traffic control, critical updates, hospital medicine and, and other sort of, you know, critical industries like, you know, the nuclear fuels industry and stuff. How do you introduce change? Now, in HEM services, you have this sort of fiery baptism in, in London. Uh, well, I say fiery, it's not that we're nasty to people, but you've got this steep learning curve, even if you can do the job before, but of learning how it's done in London. And then for most people, learning some new skills and some new knowledge on top of that as to how it's gonna it's gonna develop and work with you in that environment. Um, and so you've got this four to six week period where you're learning SOPs, you're embedding that knowledge, you're testing yourself on that. And then you've got this day with a, a consultant who may or may not be scary to you. And, and then you're being vivid and tested on it. And then you're getting signed off. Now, we go, we'll go through our own versions of that, whichever industry we're in. But that forms your core foundation knowledge. And in the same way, you see when under stress, people go back to their core actions. So I remember um, talking to a paramedic who had an RTC, uh, sorry, a road traffic collision for those of us that are not with UK pilots. Um, so this was on blue lights and he had the accident. And he's used to having his radio when he's wearing green on one side of his jacket hooked up. But... In the Hems car, it was in a different place. And so you see on the video him grasping up and, and reaching into thin air, trying to get onto the radio, saying, oh, my God, I've had an accident. And we all do this standard thing of that's what we know, that's what we reach for when the you know things get tough. And looking at recent cases and stuff, you have people where, you know, you do these things where you say, we're introducing something new. I'm going to be around my colleague's going to be around to chat with if you want to, or we can do it online. <clears throat> we're going to leave training material. We're going to leave training kit, training heads. We're going to ask you to read and sign a piece of paper to say you have read this and you are happy with this. We're going to introduce it into moulages and talk about it day to day. You do all these things, yet you see teams, when under pressure, making not mistakes, but going to that base foundation of their practice when they're under extreme pressure and then going afterwards well did you think about site i just didn't think about it. i knew it was there you know it's there but you didn't think about it and i think it's that thing of when you see under people under pressure going back to this base practice if you don't have a break then it gets worse and and i think of a couple of cases where when we talk about stepwise management you know where you're going to you know your plan a you know your plan b you know your plan c and when i do difficult airway management so we take patients with cancer and and very very complex airways and i start off by putting some spray to numb and topicalize their airway and i know that if i stop spraying them they'll stop coughing because i'm just putting some spray in and if i wait then that spray will wear off i know with my sedation if i start really gently that they're chatting to me. If I give a bit more and they stop chatting to me, I should come back. So each point, you kind of got a point where you've got a point of safety and then you go and dip your toe in the water and does it work or not, you come back. 
And this is what stepwise airway management should hopefully be. And if you do that, you go, well, that didn't work. I'm going to come back to bag valve masking. Or that didn't work. I'm going to go back to the supraglottic airway. And then you have a moment where you have control. You think the pressure comes off you and then you go to the next step. But when you review cases where things don't go ideally, what you find is that pressure builds up because they go to the next step and it doesn't work. And you're oh, crumbs. The pressure's building up. It's getting worse. I'll go to the next step. And that doesn't work. And, and this pressure building up squeezes your bandwidth and you find yourself less open to the options that on any other day you would think about going back to that base practice. Now, having defined the problem, I don't have an answer for you because I'm still searching for, other than having people circle through the service and come in and get that base practice anew, I haven't found a way yet of embedding it. You talk to people about it, you do coached moulages, and you try and introduce it into their thought process. But it sometimes works and it doesn't. It's really hard to embed these things. But I think when you're embedding something, you need to think about where it fits into your process and how you're going to train for it as you do. Listen, that's really interesting because I think from this graded exposure perspective, yeah. so an experience speaks a thousand words or a thousand SOPs really. And I think what it what, what you're notioning towards, which I completely agree with, is actually that experiential medicine in, in light and presence of a mentor brings the SOP, the standard operating procedure, off the page into practice and you, you can start to link a to b to c to when uh, and, and start to navigate the again not make the sop for the patient but make uh or indeed uh the, the, the other way around but just start to see where the main utility and baseline of practice works where you're comfortable and maybe even test yourself to where you're not comfortable but like you say you know the, the main adage is being able to step back and look at yourself and almost be this anthropologist of yourself and say, oh, I really didn't I, just really notice where you deviate under stress, what your, what, again, what your subconscious baseline is, what you, what you fall back to. And maybe that's actually through debrief that someone else gives you that information. But the power of being in the moment and thinking, actually, I'm not coping with this. I actually need to verbalize that, maybe mm -hmm. delegate maybe maybe actually talk about things share the load and then come back to a place where i'm comfortable again but it's almost that reflection in the moment and it and again you you can't read that you can't learn that through lectures that's experiential when you're in the back of the ambulance there's noise in the background the patient's vomiting they're bleeding there's 10 suction units on there's the life pack beeping and buzzing and yeah and 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 learning how to different and be an observer of yourself but differentiate signal from noise what is the true signal i need to pay attention to right now there are two things that i'd, I'd love to pick up from there so I, was, I was really lucky um, at, um, at world extreme medicine to to meet martin bromley um he's a, a line training captain uh with a with a major airline whose wife uh, passed away as a result of an anesthetic um disaster uh, where, where people lost that signal and we were chatting about these sort of things and and one thing he said to me is that where what they train their captains to do and their leaders to do is the opposite of what we treat uh, what we train people to do in the nhs and hospital so in hospital we talk about speaking up 
and you have these speaking up guardians and these things say you should champion your patient, you should speak up and say all these things, which is great. But what they teach their captains to is listen up. And what I find is, you know, when you look at these situations, there's usually somebody that has an idea that you should try something different or this isn't working or someone even that actually has a solution but can help you offload. And actually, exactly as you say, when this is going wrong, first thing I admit, I had a, I had a difficulty last week, um, not a major problem, but it's just like, it's just not working. And so I just said to the anesthetic nurse with me, so I, I think I'm screwing this up. I don't think this is going right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come out. I'm going to go back that step and just oxygenate the patient. Could you pop out your head outside the door and ask someone to get me some help? And, and one of my colleagues came and they just ran through the same process as me. And we agreed that this is not actually me just being a terrible practitioner, but actually we go on to a different step. And that just helps you that speaking up and saying that this isn't right. I think it really helps. And the other thing I was going to say is when I... Um, try and do these things. There are these halo procedures, these high acuity, low occurrence procedures. Most of us will never do a surgical airway, or if we do, we'll only do a handful. Most of us will never do a thoracotomy or, or, or these sort of procedures. And when I think about these things, this is very difficult to, to enforce training on people. But when you do the training by yourself, so not an organizational point of view, when I think about it by myself, I'll sit there and some of the lessons I took from, you know, uh, being able to talk to and work with some high performance athletes is they are exposing themselves to one incredibly high stress moment. Might only be 15 seconds long in a hundred meter race where everything banks onto this. And that's a halo procedure. That's a surgical airway. That's this thing where everything banks onto this. You've got to get everything right just that one time. And so for those, you sit there and they visualize the whole race. They visualize what they're going to do. So I visualize what would I do if I need to do a surgical airway? What would I do if I need to do a thoracotomy, et cetera, and all these things. And then you sit there and you go, where would I put the knife? Where would I stand? What would I do? And that means that on the day that you end up doing it, 20% of your bandwidth is doing the job. 80% of your bandwidth is coping with all the other random stuff that's happening that you can't imagine beforehand, which seems to work much nicer, but <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you're right. It's, it's very much this, this learned practice over, over time and an observed practice in yourself and other people, but listening up is a fantastic, fantastic, um, sort of notion. And I know I'll take that away certainly into, into my practice, John, just looking at the way you, um, maybe observe and monitor respiratory or indeed how you assess respiratory are there any, I learned quite early on in my practice that, you know, respiratory rate, certainly in a trauma patient, but also in the medical patient is, is probably one of the most sensitive markers. It can be masked, but just, just look, being really attentive and sensitive to a patient's respiratory rate can be a really, yeah, sensitive marker as to um, level of injury decompensation and or compensation could i get you to speak to how you assess it and indeed what decisions you you might make from it so uh, i think when we talk about respiratory rate the games going with the with the aviation analogy is a thing called fixation error where you see one thing at one point and then you run with that and so you see 
a heart rate on a monitor of 80, do you unhappy with that? And you don't see back that it's crept up slowly to 120 and stuff. And same with respiratory rate, but respiratory rate is much, much harder to do. And it's a very subtle, but as you say, an incredibly sensitive sign of what's going on with the patient. It's not very specific because it doesn't tell you that it's definitely a respiratory issue or a anxiety or pain issue or a or a, a, a hemorrhage issue. You, 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 but it points you to going, something's going wrong. And I think one of the good things about respiratory rate is if you observe it, you're actually observing the whole patient. And so that's the other unintended benefit of looking at respiratory rate. Um, I remember when I was uh, doing intensive care medicine as a registrar, one of the consultants pulling me back and saying, step away from the patient, stand at the end of the bed, just shut up and look. And that's a really good way of observing respiratory rate. Just taking a moment, give yourself 20, 30 seconds, look at the respiratory rate. And as you're looking at the respiratory rate and counting it and looking at the chest, you'll see are both sides of the chest rising equally. Is the patient actually pale? Are they well perfused? Do they look cold? And you start taking this whole stuff in. And remember that that Mark I eyeball is a darn sight better than a thousand monitors. Monitors are great for recording and giving you points and helping you avoid that fixation error. But taking that 20 seconds to stand at the edge of the bed or at the side of the bed and just look at the overall thing, is this patient okay? And this is something I learned from the, the great Gareth Davies when I was signing off and stuff. So, you know, when he was on shift with me and I was a panicking registrar going, I've got to get everything right, I've got to get every box filled in. He would look through the crack of the door of the ambulance and just look for 10 or 20 seconds, look at the patient. And he would either be reassured that it's fine, even John can't kill this patient, or he'd be like, John, you need to do something, <laughs> you know. And, and, and that's that's that thing. I think that's where respiratory rate really comes in. But the tricks of it is take your time, look at it, and then it's all about layering up and building your information and going through this cycle of take the information make a diagnosis, does it fit? Look at the information again. Is that building up towards that diagnosis and supporting you? Or is it, no, I've got this completely wrong. You start back at the start and you go, but the more time you spend with the patient, the more information you get. So just look, progressing on to sort of surgical airways in front of neck axis. Now, again, you know, maybe there's a, there's a lot of time spent on talking and indeed training on these procedures. And quite rightly so, like you said, high acuity, low occurrence procedures. I've only done two in my career and both extremely difficult, actually, um, just because just the nature of these unfasted patients, excessive bleeding and or otherwise. Could you Could you maybe speak to tips for optimization when dealing with surgical airways um uh, to sort of try and mitigate some complications because i was completely taken back by how much these things bleed so well the first thing uh, that surprises everybody is that these patients bleed a hell of a lot um so that's good because it means your patient has an output <laughs> which is always a good starting point um when you talk when you when you see ENT surgeons do it, they trick you because they infiltrate with local anesthetic and adrenaline and it's a nice bloodless field and they take their time. The other thing they do is they concentrate on positioning. So if you look at the anatomy, if you look at a, a sagittal slice, so a, a slice as if an archer is 
cutting you in half down the middle. You, you look at that on an MRI. Um, you can find these images online and stuff. And you can see where the airway goes. So the airway starts relatively centrally in the neck, and then it dives backwards. It dives backwards as it goes down because you've got the other structures in your mediastinum in front of it and all that. And so when we're looking at the airway, you actually are coming into the front of the neck and it's diving away from you as it goes. It's not sitting there like a, 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 a level structure. And so that's the first thing. And so if you can position the patient, so what they do in theatre, in hospitals, they just stick a shoulder roll underneath and that just levels things off, makes life a darn sight easier. But we don't always have that luxury. But you've got to be aware then what you're doing is going for a structure that's diving away from you. And you've got this big chin coming down on top of it, making your access point harder. So positioning will help you, but you don't always have the option for that. But knowing that that's making your life harder can be enough to make your life easier. There are some practitioners around the world that train people to do this um, uh, sort of blinded. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether it's a good idea to give people a knife when and, and, and cover their eyes. So I, I'm not going to recommend that. But I think this is a, a thing that if you look at hospital, you have one way of doing it, but actually that's not the way we're going to do it. Um, and so you do need to be aware that this is going to be done mainly by feel. And again, just thinking about what you want to feel. So Having a decent feel, if you've got really good landmarks, great. If you haven't, making a vertical incision first to clear that soft tissue out of the way so you can feel those landmarks makes your life easier. But don't worry about bleeding. That can be sorted out afterwards. You need the oxygen going in first. The other thing when it comes to technique is there's a dichotomy in what people are taught. Now, the Difficult Airway Society, which I am a member of and I have and I work with the president of, I have a huge amount of respect for, does a huge amount of great work, but it is all about hospital-based anesthesia. So the protocol that they have, the Difficult Airway Society, front of neck access, the plan D, the, the surgical cryotherapy, is based around what makes it work in hospital. And you've got to remember the critical difference between hospital and pre-hospital is if I'm doing a pre, uh, if I'm doing a surgical airway in hospital, I am admitting failure. I have failed to pre-assess the patient. I've failed to pre-plan for the patient. I've failed to get my anaesthetic right for the patient. And if I'm doing emergency front of neck of access, I am going to be criticised by my colleagues quite rightly but I am going to be criticised by my colleagues and therefore my day is going to be worse. And that's not the day I expected to have when I turned up to work. I don't want to do one in hospital. And so if I have an excuse for not doing one, I won't do one. And the thing when you look at healthcare practitioners as opposed to non-medical people, when you wire us up and show us something horrible happening to a patient, we don't have much emotion to it, whereas a normal person does. And so... It sounds callous, but our thinking doesn't go, oh, my God, oh, my God, I've got to do the right thing by the patient. That's actually another step in our thinking. And so we don't want to do this because we go, oh, my God, my day's going to be terrible. My week's going to be terrible. So the Difficult Airway Society guideline is the minimum kit, the easy available kit. A 22 scalpel, a normal bougie, and a six tube is what they recommend. And the scalpel twist bougie technique is validated on pigs and it does work, 
but it's not the best technique for a surgical airway. If you have a slightly larger tube, a six and a half tube, if you have tracheodilators, or if you prefer to use a tracheal hook, a tracheal hook, it makes the surgery easier. But as a pre-hospital practitioner, I don't feel any of that. Because if I'm doing a surgical airway, I'm doing it in the main because the patient needs it because of the injuries they've suffered. No one's going to criticize me. And I've got an assistant with me who's going to know that technique and back me up with it. Whereas in hospital, I would have done it, but is, is the reason. So there are these two different techniques, and you can read Lockie's paper on it, which goes back almost 20 years now, about the London Hems technique, and you can look at the DAS paper. But I'd urge you to think about both of those and, th- and know both of them because your circumstances may be different when you're doing it and you may have not have all the kit. John, I think that's fantastic. I think I'll put both papers in the show notes, actually. So Lockie's paper and the Difficult Airway Society paper as well. So uh, listeners can see both. So just before we come into land, John, just there's, there's two sort of finisher questions before we just look at any take-home messages. And they're around sort of uh, seminal, initially seminal pieces of research and then sort of seminal cases that, that you've learned from. But maybe firstly, just look, if we could just look at seminal research, because, you know, in the, in the early 20s, sort of 10, 15 years ago, this concept of impact brain apnea crept onto the, onto, onto the scene and kind of I'm not sure it revolutionized perspectives, but what it did is it, it really alerted people to the immediacy of, of good essential slash basic airway management or most even bystander airway management before, before, um, practitioners get, get on scene. But maybe could you speak to sort of some of these seminal pieces of research in, in your mind? Yeah. So I, I think the research driving practices is critical. And, and as a good example, you know, this idea of us intubating patients pre-hospital that didn't have anything on their scans immediately afterwards was, you know, very much frowned upon. You felt uncomfortable because your colleagues were going, why are you doing this? And the impact brain apnea stuff showing that actually this is a consequence of of an impact that doesn't give you a structural brain um, problem, but actually, you know, effectively scrambles your physiology for a short or longer period of time, depending on the impact and the importance of early airway management. And again, we go back to the zero responder and the, and the first person on scene doing this airway management and listening up, listening to them and listening to their experiences and not discounting it because you've got someone with a patent airway now but listening to the person say they weren't breathing they were gurgling they did have this really weird respiratory pattern actually listening to that and this isn't new stuff this is stuff that comes from 30 40 50 years ago that we've forgotten and now we've relearned this is really important and and you know this research not only is it really important in terms of the airway management we do now but i think it's really important for us to learn to listen to people and listen to the accounts and say that doesn't fit with my current picture so rather than discounting it change my current picture John, that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So if we could just migrate on to sort of seminal cases or indeed a seminal case that that, that you could speak to, um, that you've, you've sort of learned a lot maybe about your own practice or, or indeed about, uh, yeah, just some of the fundamentals of airway management from, from your own practice. So when I think about sort of seminal cases 
for me, an airway management, they've not always been the ones where things have gone wrong. Um, Because I think most people sit there and go, oh, yeah, that one, this went wrong, that went wrong. But often when you have that, you sit there and you go, oh, do you know what? The answers were here and this is is what I should have done. Um, Actually, for me, some of the cases that have really informed how I do things are about decision making. And so I think of, um, you know, some cases where um, some of these are mine, some of these are my colleagues, and I won't go into too much because I don't want them to be identifiable. But cases where, you know, people have made an early decision that's bad. They've gotten poor information. They've made a poor decision. And then they've stuck with it. And when you look at that case peel out, the outcome is fine. But actually, the, the road that they've reached to, the reason that you feel so uncomfortable, the reason that it's seminal is because it just goes to show that the early decision making and loading your effort into that first few minutes to get the information, start your decision making process correctly is so critical. And then also in the medium term of that patient, not being able to revisit your decision, say, Do you know what, that's wrong. Um, and I, th- I think of an impact brain apnea patient that I, I treated where I went there and I thought, oh, I've got this. I've read of all the impact brain apnea stuff. This guy's fine. He'll, he'll just wake up. He'll be all right. And he wasn't. He died. And it's that feeling of those cases that start running away from you. And it feels awful. But you sit there and when you reflect on it after you, what went wrong? And what went wrong for me there, again, was decision-making. I made my early decision and I stuck with it and I shouldn't have. I should have reassessed. By the time I was reassessing, I was scrabbling. I didn't have that point of safety to go back to. The patient was just getting worse and worse and worse. And what in fact happened to this patient is they had an impact brain apnea, they had a sympathetic surge, and they had a heart attack. And what I was doing was I was treating someone along trauma lines. And in retrospect, it's plain as day. This guy was having a massive heart attack. And I gave him completely the wrong stuff. And by pointing that wrong direction, the hospital continued in the wrong direction for the next, well, the last few few minutes of this poor man's life. And you certainly go, why did this go wrong? And all it comes back to is the decision making. And that's when it comes to airway management, it's not... You know, it's not like the funky surgery stuff that, that Mr. Perkins and, and colleagues do in theatre. It's not the super clever pharmacology stuff. There is physiology. We can talk about respiratory physiology till the cows come home. But actually, it's decision-making, decision-making, decision-making. Listen, that's fantastic. And just really speaks to something you said earlier, John, around not being biased, but also being open to change and letting, allowing other people to speak into your practice from from sharing the plan and from reevaluation. Um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So on that note, John, as we do come into land, could you just maybe speak to two or three sort of take home messages for listeners that you'd that you'd like to leave them with? Um, so I think there's a whole range of skills in airway management i think people focus a lot on skills you have the skills that you have you don't have the skills that you don't have think about what you offer that patient and where in the timeline of care the things that the patient needs are we are not the sole providers of care we provide an episode in their whole journey of care 
And what we need to do as practitioners is understand that we all have some diagnosis here. There'll be more diagnosis later. We might be right. We might be wrong. But what we need to do is take the information that we have and think about where that journey is going and plan our airway management and our airway care in line with where that patient's cells are going to get the oxygen, that mitochondria is going to get that oxygen, and that CO2 clearance that it needs, rather than the skill set that we have. A mediocrely managed airway with airway adjuncts in a BVM, getting them to a, a place where they can have that cell oxygenated earlier is better than spending longer doing something far more complicated yet unsuccessful. Um, you know, and that. So I just think that the take home message for me is think about the timeline of that patient's physiology and where our skills fit into it. And don't be too proud about your own skill set or someone else's, because I'm more than happy just to take someone in, on an airway adjunct and say, do you know what? I need someone's help. John, listen, that's fantastic. And and that speaks to that question I asked earlier around your approach to airway management. And I, very much in my own practice, but other people's practice as as the, through the longevity of their career. I think hopefully ego becomes less and less. And like you said, outpatient outcome and just de-escalating the expectation on yourself and the team members to, to get to that right intervention. And then that might be a whole, that might be a whole different card array of interventions depending on you're right what's in front of you but not putting it on you to to have to perform just because you have the skill and it's 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 very much knowing when and when not to deploy that skill so i think that's john i think that's fantastic I'd just like to thank you for the last hour, John. It's really just fantastic getting your perspectives and insights and indeed just your anecdotal experience because it's it's absolutely uh, invaluable. So thank you. Cool. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.